And once more, it is another edition of What's Involved. This time, a special guest. He is the author of the book called Nation on the Couch, Inside South Africa's Mind. And knowing me as you do, as soon as I saw this, I went, I want to get into the mind of South Africa. Who is he? He is uh, Professor Wabi Long. Wabi, welcome. Good to have you along with us. Thank you, David. I'm glad to be here. Okay, so before we get into the book and why you would write a book like this, which to date, and maybe I'm I'm misinformed, but I haven't seen anybody write a book from this particular perspective. Let's talk a little bit about Wabi. Um, Give me a bit of your background, a bit of your history, and uh, leads you up to where you are today. Sure. Well, David, I'm born and bred uh, in Cape Town. Um, I grew up very much in the the 80s and and the 90s, went to university at UCT in the late 90s, trained as a clinical psychologist uh, at Stellenbosch in the early 2000s. I joined the National Defense Force, uh, went off as a peacekeeper uh, for, for a few months, um, and then started at UCT as, a, as a, an academic in, in uh, around 2010. Uh, and, and here we are, here I am, uh, 11 years later. Okay, fair enough. Now, number one, you are in a field that absolutely fascinates me, one that I've been too scared to study myself because I was convinced that if I did, I would drive myself nuts. Um, but what made you want to get into psychology? You know, I'm, I'm just thinking to myself, uh, David, of that famous quote by Kierkegaard that life can only be understood backwards, but it has to be lived forwards. And I suppose when I, when I started psychology, um, I had no idea that I was going to become a clinical psychologist. I, I did a general BA degree at UCT and I did subjects like economics and maths and philosophy. So there was no early indication that clinical psychology was going to be it for me. Um, but hindsight is, is, is 2020. And of course, training as a clinical psychologist, one of the things one has to get to grips with um, is one's motivations for wanting to sign up for a profession like this. Um, I think my, my motivations um, derive very much from, from my experiences uh, growing up in the, the late apartheid years and, and the early um, democracy years. Um, I was very fortunate as, as a person of color to attend some of the best schools uh, in Cape Town um, in the, the late 80s uh, and through most of the 90s. And because of the lack of, of integration in, in some of those top schools, I was always on the outside, always on the outside watching, um, looking in. Um, and so I think uh, that's really where my my. I suppose, interest in, in human beings, in observing, in taking notes and trying to understand why people do what they do, took off. Um, that's, I think, the, the prime uh, motivator for, for my decision, um, at least in retrospect, to, to get into clinical psychology. And yes, as they say, the rest is history. Now, speaking of history, I mean, what made you think 
and 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 correct me if I'm wrong, because because what I'm seeing when we when we talk about this book, Nation on the Couch, inside South Africa's mind, um, it's it's almost as though we're looking at South Africa as a person, for want of a better yes. better word, um, and saying, okay, let's now go and unpack what's happening in this rather complex mind. What made you want to write a book like this? Well, I've always been interested in the connection between internal worlds and the external social material world that, that surrounds us. I think one of the biggest uh, conundrums in, in the social sciences and humanities is around how to connect the two. Um, if one thinks of sociologists, for example, they will, they will analyze uh, social conditions to death, but they won't have very much to say about internal worlds. And psychologists, on the other hand, are notorious for doing the exact opposite. And one of my intellectual interests um, over the last five to 10 years is about trying to understand that connection between internal uh, consciousness or unconsciousness for that matter, and what's happening in the world um, that surrounds us. And there is a, there's a rich tradition within the academy that attempts to, um, if you like, heal that split between the inside and the outside, the internal and the external. And, and I'm referring specifically to um, the Freudo-Marxist um, school of thought. As you'll know from the book, David, I draw a fair bit on, on Freud and, and Marx because I think Freudo-Marxism is, is a useful um, well, represents a useful uh, tradition for trying to um, keep the internal and the external in conversation with one another rather than collapsing that, that binary um, in one direction um, rather than, than the other. Now, of course, one of, the, one of the big ideas in the book is the idea of a political unconscious. Um, and what I do there is I, I move beyond the idea of an individual unconscious, a la Freud, an individual personal unconscious. I also don't really look at the Jungian idea of a, of a collective unconscious. What I, what I posit is, is the existence of a, of a political unconscious. And by political unconscious, um, you can already see that I'm trying to bring the, the internal and the external in conversation into conversation with, with one another. So by political unconscious, I really mean the storehouse of all our unsolved social antagonisms. That's how I understand the unconscious. When human beings don't know how to solve a problem, the problem becomes unconscious. And that's at least at an individual level. But at a political social level, a similar um, repression, if you like, takes place. We don't know how to solve sexism. We don't know how to solve racism. We don't know how to solve inequality. These are the, the, the unsolved social antagonisms that then come to populate our shared political unconscious um, as South Africans. Mm. Now, in the book, okay, you've, you've divided it up into sections. There's, there's a, a section called shame, one called envy, one called impasse. And then you go on to my favorite topic, which is hope. Um, so let's, let's have a look because you mentioned something very important. And if I think back 
1994, we were the happiest people in the world. Okay, we'd mm. just gotten through what could have been huge, huge civil unrest. Um, we, we had um, a, a new rainbow nation. Everybody was talking about it. We were all very, very happy. And now, however many 20, 30 plus years on, um, nothing seems to have changed terribly much. And we we're all very vocal about saying our country is broken. And we can tell you exactly where the broken bits are, but we can't fix them or we haven't been able to fix them or even look at them to this point. So in terms of, of, of your take on this book, why shame, envy, impasse, and then hope? Well, I essentially wanted to think about what the different psychological complexes are that assess us as South Africans. Now, of course, the, the very idea of South Africa as a nation is a contested thing, and understandably so. So you'll have noticed, David, that as one moves through those first three chapters in particular, shame, envy, and impasse, I'm really looking at different South African constituencies, um, because I think there are different psychological complexes in operation. So the chapter on shame, for example, is is really about the, the psychological experience of poverty. And not just poverty, but or absolute poverty, but relative poverty. In other words, inequality. So, so that chapter is very much about the poor and working classes um, of South Africa. The chapter on envy um, looks at a different South African grouping. And here I'm looking at the rising black middle class. And particularly in the shape of university students. So fallism is an important um, point of analysis in that chapter on envy. And then the chapter on impasse looks at, at white South Africans, um, where I suggest that um, for many, the, the unanswered question is, is how to understand themselves, i.e. as white, white South Africans, in a, an integrated post-apartheid democratic um, South Africa. Maybe I can just add parenthetically that there's, there's one group of South Africans that I don't look at here. Um, because really, if one, if one thinks about the poor and working classes, the rising black middle class, um, and white South Africans, that would seem to be the whole nation. Uh, but there is one one section of of South Africa that I think is relatively underrepresented in this book, um, and that has to do, I think, with the established uh, black bourgeoisie. I don't have much to say um, other than one or two chapters, uh, sorry, one or two pages in the book um, on that particular grouping. But broadly, those first three chapters cover, I would say, um, the fractured uh, South African nation. That, of course, leads into the, the chapter on hope. Given all these, these complexes, um, given the, the destructiveness of the kinds of, of, of emotions that I'm uh, theorizing around in those first three chapters, what hope is there for South Africa to, to not just survive against the odds, but also to flourish? Um, and then in the 
the very final chapter, after the chapter on hope, I try to operationalize, I try to concretize what a hopeful South Africa would look like. And to that end, I, I unpack um, what has be become known as the golden rule. Wonderful stuff. Well, we're going to dive deeper into that uh, and into some more of those chapters because uh, it's a fascinating book. Um, and uh, some of the stories and, and the way you've written it, this stuff that is quite shocking and sometimes quite heartbreaking. My special guest is uh, Professor Wabi Long, uh, author of Nation on the Couch, Inside South Africa's Mind. We'll be back in just a bit. This is what's involved. And we're back with my special guest, Professor Wabi Long, author of Nation on the Couch, Inside South Africa's Mind. So from very much a layperson's perspective, Wabi, um, as I mentioned earlier, we, we, we all acknowledge South Africa is broken. And, and you're talking about being inside South Africa's mind. Alienation. Now, talk to me about what are these factors? Why? Why could we not just have the 1994 elections, everybody get together and sing Kumbaya and go forward as a rainbow nation? Because I'm the eternal optimist. I believe in this country. Um, I take great offense to all the people that are saying that they're leaving because by leaving, you're not helping and you're not being part of the solution. But, but how? What is it? Where did it come from? Talk to me. Well, David, I think that uh, in Freudian terms, what happened is the repressed returned. Um, we had that honeymoon phase in, in the mid-1990s, but TRC aside, and the, the legacy of the TRC is, is, is contested, uh, there really weren't opportunities for, um, for national healing, frankly. And I think what we are seeing now um, is, is not just uh, the return of, of the repressed um, stemming from centuries of, of colonial uh, and, and apartheid oppression, but also um, contemporary uh, or real-time responses to the various inequalities and, and structural violences of today. So we're, we're not just sitting on, on legacy, the legacy of the past. We're also sitting on the traumas of the present. Um, one of the, the interesting things that, that one learns, for example, in Holocaust studies is that the survivors of the Holocaust were reluctant to speak about their experiences. Um, they just got on with the business of life, much like we South Africans did. We got on with the business of life. Um, but what happened was that the grandchildren of those survivors started asking questions. And once those questions began to be asked, there was a, an, an outpouring of, of grief. Um, and then the, the full horror of the Holocaust, the full emotional um, horror of the Holocaust emerged. And I think something similar has happened in the South African instance, where the, the generation that lived through apartheid, and that includes my generation of 30, 40-year-olds, um, just wanted to get on with the business of life, try and, and build, uh, rebuild a, a broken country. But what happened was the grandkids 
started asking questions. And by the grandkids, I'm talking, of course, about the born freaks. It's anomalous to, to older South Africans when they ask, when they look at the, the anger um, of young South Africans who weren't alive during the apartheid years. Older South Africans are nonplussed. They, they, they wonder how this can even be possible. I can remember for my generation, um, we were the first black generation to, to go to university, at least in, in any, serious, any serious sort of show of numbers. Our parents would tell us, get on with it, work hard, um, keep your nose clean and, and build a life for yourselves. And the born frees don't see it in that way. The born frees see that as a, as a whitewash of centuries of, of trauma. Then, of course, it, it, uh, it, it coalesced around that sentiment, coalesced around the various fallist movements that hit universities between 2015 and, and 2017 especially. So it's, a, it's an interesting question. Why now? Um, but there is historical precedent. If one looks at what happened uh, to, to survivors of the Holocaust and and the grandchildren of, of those survivors um, in particular. It's a very interesting question, but whatever the answer, the, the point is that we cannot wish away the past. The past is always with us. Um, it's a common refrain in, in, in civil discourse. Why can't we just move on? Um, and speaking as a clinical psychologist, that just isn't how psychological life works. One cannot just move on. Um, the ghosts of the past have to be, if not exorcised, they have to be lived with. Um, they have to be made peace with. And that is not something I think that, that as a nation, South Africans have done. I would agree with you there, because if I relate to my own experiences, um, I was uh, sort of in, the, in, the, in the, the really bad times in the, in the 80s. I was in uh, the Defence Force, and part of what we had to do at that stage was was riot duty. Now, I went into the Army as this naive 18-year-old that had no idea, no idea about politics or about anything. And I then went through that phase as well. When I came out, there was there was no sort of support for, for myself, people like myself um, at all. You were just, you did it, now get on with it. And I was talking a little while ago to somebody who was uh, at that same stage was a, a member of Mkonto Esizwe, and they were having exactly the same things. You know, they got in there now, everything's patched up, we're all supposed to be okay, but there's hundreds and thousands of broken people. And even for me to be able to sit down and eventually get to a stage where I could talk about the trauma of those days and that time, it was an immensely difficult thing. But having said that, once you're able to talk about it and discuss and discuss with other people, effectively discuss with somebody from the other side, um, that helped me to find a whole lot more peace because I was, I was living on a knife edge most of the time. Yes. And, and David, I think that it, it's becoming more and more possible to to, to talk about lived experience these days. I think we, we are increasingly living in a, a, a therapeutic society, actually, 
um, to to use the phrase that that some sociologists use, we live in a therapeutic society that values, or at least is increasingly um, open to expressions of emotion and and vulnerability. It may well be that uh, back in the 80s and 90s, before the therapeutic society had really set in, at least in South Africa, it just was harder um, to, to have these kinds of conversations, apart from the fact that we were perhaps just too close to the trauma of, of apartheid and, and, uh, and colonialism. Um, but it, it's, it's perhaps uh, indicative that as we move into our almost our, our, our fourth decade of or towards our fourth decade of democratic rule and as we gain distance from the past apart from the fact that we live in a therapeutic society it just becomes more possible for people to express um, emotions that 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 perhaps couldn't be expressed um, in in the, the the early years of, of democratic South Africa. Right. Well, there's still a whole lot more that uh, I'd like to dive into. And uh, I think we've, we've talked a little bit now um, and, and discussed the things of, of, of shame, for example. But there is another whole section uh, all about envy. So I want to get into that a little bit more when we come back. My special guest is Professor Wabi Long. We are talking about his book, Nation on the Couch, Inside South Africa's Mind. We'll be back in just a bit. This is What's Involved. And we're back. What's Involved it is, Nation on the Couch, Inside South Africa's Mind, uh, the book that's just been uh, released by Professor Wabi Long. Wabi, so uh, just before the break, I, I, I sort of shared a, a part of my story and a part of what we felt. And I said, you know, it was it was from all sides that we had this this sense of shame and, and guilt. Um, but you talk about envy in the book as well. Can we dive into that a little bit? Explain to me where this envy comes in. So, David, I use the word envy not in a colloquial sense, but really in a technical psychoanalytic sense. Envy in the colloquial sense is seen as a moral failing, um, which is not at all what I'm arguing for in that chapter. I'm really... Uh, making the case that envy is a part of life, a part of life, um, but especially prevalent in unequal societies. The thing about envy, though, is that psychoanalytically speaking, it is a destructive emotion. And what happens is, um, if I can just go into the, the theory of, of envy quickly, when, when an infant comes into the world, it is effectively dependent. It is, it is utterly dependent on another human being for its survival. And it is the experience of dependence, um, especially when that, um, that other human being, um, that all-powerful human being is, is withholding or not completely available, that the impact of envy becomes especially destructive. Um, so... It's part and parcel of, of, of psychological life, but at a, at a more social level, a more social political level, in contexts of inequality, the effects of envy um, are especially uh, dangerous. 
So the argument I make in the chapter on envy is that for the rising black middle class, young black South Africans who are entering historically white universities, elite universities, for the first time, they find themselves dislocated in all sorts of ways, linguistically, culturally, racially, materially, just alienated in, in, in so many respects, but also utterly dependent on this institution, really this life-giving institution because of the promise of a life of dignity, the promise of a life of dignity, material support, networking, opportunities, and, and all the rest. And it is, it is the experience of being shamefully dependent on these institutions, I argue, um, that drives envious acts of destructiveness. And of course, uh, we all know how much damage was done to universities, whether in the form of artworks being burnt, um, buildings being looted, uh, feces being poured into lecture halls, the, the destruction um, came to the tune of about 800 million rand, I think, at one point. Um, and, and that really is, is, for me, what happens in unequal societies. If one thinks about it, why is it that there was never a fallist school, for example, in, sorry, a fallist movement in the township schools of Cape Town? And the, the simple answer is because everybody's getting an inferior education in those schools. There is no culture of social comparison on which envy can feed, as it were. But once students from disadvantaged backgrounds move into historically white institutions, once the experience of relative poverty kicks in, then social comparisons um, become inevitable. Then one's dependence, one's, one's dependence, experience of dependence becomes actually excruciating. And this is when, when envy must um, kick in. The difficulty with envy, of course, is that it's, it's hard to stop. Um, once acts of destruction begin, they, they develop a, an almost unstoppable logic. Um, and then, of course, university managers face the very difficult um, decision of, of whether or not a line should be drawn in the sand, whether or not they need to hold the frame, whether or not they need to set limits. And different universities, of course, dealt with those questions um, differently. If one, if one thinks of UCT, for example, um, I think the general sense is that the university management were, didn't really draw that line in the sand, whereas at WITS, um, something quite different happened. Um, so institutions ha handle, handled the, the expression of, of envy, I think, differently um, across different campuses. Now, the interesting thing for me, because now I'm not of that generation, and a bunch of people I know also not of that generation, is, is we would look at it and go, but why? It makes no sense. Why are you destroying that which can give you this, this, this entryway into the big, bright world? 
Um, and I think that's also one of the difficulties that we're having. Absolutely. That's the paradox of envy. And Jonathan Janssen, for one, in, in a different forum, has asked the question, why do South Africans burn on a Friday what uh, we need on a Monday? The thing is that envy doesn't wait for Monday. Um, it, it, is, it doesn't operate in, in, in the realm of logic. And, and again, I, I don't want to set up a binary here where I, I'm suggesting that logic is good and illogic or irrationality is bad. What I am saying is that envy is a natural part of human life, but that its, its impact um, is especially aggravated when one, is, um, when one finds oneself in an unequal society such as South Africa, because it's in unequal societies that the experience of dependence um, is, is very much intensified. And it's that experience of dependence on, on an object that is experienced as frustrating or as shaming or as withholding um, that, that drives um, envious acts of destruction. Now, having said that, I mean, we, we get to, and I know I've spoken to a bunch of people about this. We, we kind of, we're at this place now as South Africans, and I often talk about um, what I call the silent majority. Um, and these are middle-class South Africans. We know it's broken. Okay, We know. We know it's not working. Um, we've seen all sorts of protests and violence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera but we don't know how to fix it. Is this where you come in with the term impasse? Well, I think my, my reading of, of, of impasse is, is much more existential, David. It's not so much about white South Africans not knowing what to do um, to, to fix this country. Um, the, the impasse is, is really about... Uh, at, at, at an experiential level, white South Africans' confusion um, about their own identity in this country. Because for hundreds of years, white South Africans were masters and black South Africans were slaves. Um, now that we're in a, in a democratic dispensation, uh, that dialectic, the so-called Hegelian master-slave dialectic, has been turned on its head. Um, and the question now for, for many white South Africans is, well, if I'm not living in a master-slave society, what kind of society am I living in? How, do I, how should um, I see myself? And the, the argument I make in that chapter on impasse is that, unfortunately, um, many white South Africans have retreated. Rather than stepping into the void um, that has been created by the collapse of this master-slave dialectic, they've simply battened down the hatches. Uh, many white South Africans have, have really just retreated um, from, from public life. Um, many, as you mentioned at the, the, the start of uh, this interview, have, have just gone for the immigration option. Many leave Johannesburg because they imagine that Cape Town is, is, is the place to be. Um, I also spend a bit of time in that chapter trying to understand what, what this psychology of avoidance is, is all about, because that really, I think, is what it, what it comes down to. 
if one thinks about how white colonialists engaged with with the natives in in South Africa hundreds of years ago, there was always this there was always this this paranoid fear, I think, um, about being overcome by a deluge of of black people. And I think that those are those are very primitive fears, and I think to some extent they persist even into into the present. So the question I think for many white South Africans is how how do they relate to people that they identify as not being like them? How do they relate to the so-called other with with a capital O? And and that's the impasse that the chapter is 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 named for. Okay. No, it's, it's actually strange. As we were talking now, I, I sort of flashed back to the days in the military where the big thing was disuart gefaar, you know, the, 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 the black danger. And yeah. it, in those days, it was a very real thing. Um, these days, I can look at it and go, huh, doesn't make sense. Uh, listen, I, I want to get on to some happier topics. So I want to talk about hope uh, when we come back. This is what's involved my special guest is Professor Wabi Long, author of an amazing book called Nation on the Couch, Inside South Africa's Mind. We'll be back wrapping it up in just a bit. And we're back with uh, Professor Wabi Long, wrapping it up, Nation on the Couch, uh, Inside South Africa's Mind. That's the book we're talking about. So hope. Wabi, talk to me about hope, and then let's lead into the golden rule. Well, David, you will have seen that my prognosis is guarded shall I say. The question of hope for me is not only a psychological one, it's a material one. We can't wish away the past and simply direct our energies towards the future. Um, That just isn't how psychological life works. In the same breath, we can't therapize our way to a better future. There are material Uh, problems of of staggering proportions that need to be worked out. So here's the burning question for me. How does does one fix inequality? Um, Of course, there are all sorts of other structural violences to contend with, whether it's gender-based violence, um, racism, um, and, and, and all the other isms. But inequality for me is the primary problem that we have to reckon with in this country. Now, unfortunately, the historical record would suggest that inequality is only dealt with effectively when a lot of people die. And I draw on the work of the Stanford historian Walter Scheidel here to make that particular argument. And Scheidel, in his book, The Great Leveler, he writes about four horsemen And it is one of these four horsemen, um, one or or any of these four horsemen that historically speaking has been responsible for making a real dent in the problem of inequality. And in in each of those four cases, um, the the horseman in question slays many, many people. Um, Whether one's talking about world war, uh, revolution, state failure, outbreaks of diseases and pandemics, a lot of people die. Now, of course, that is not a viable solution for dealing with inequality um, in our country. 
but it just goes to underscore the point that the problem of inequality is not is not one that is easily solved of course depending on who you speak to you'll you'll get a different answer if you speak to your neoliberal economist they'll say well the problem is that government is too big that we need to roll back state benefits and let the market work its magic through trickle down economics and all the rest if you speak to an economist on the left they'll say the exact opposite that we have to regulate the market um otherwise um it will simply run riot and inequality will will worsen so i prefer to to look at the historical record rather than what economists say and and the historical record basically indicates that we are in for a battle um there there is one thing however that does appear to be linked to addressing the problem of inequality and that is land reform so the the question of land of course is is it's a it's 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 one that um is is constantly revisited in in civil discourse in this country and my my sense is that if we are to talk about hope in 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 a non trivial sense then the land question needs to be looked at seriously now i'm not a political scientist i'm not an economist um so i am just not going to presume to know how what what the details should even look like should look like all i'm saying is if we want to learn from history then land reform is something we have to take um seriously psychologically speaking of course um what can we do to to cultivate spaces of hope in this country uh, that is very much the 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 question of the final chapter the the so called golden rule okay now the golden rule is is uh, is is very interesting to me because uh, you start off the chapter um talking about uh, and it's one of those i don't know some people might call it a dead joke how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb only one but the light bulb really really has to want to change um so in terms of in terms of this golden rule where do we go because we are we, we i don't know my my solution is we need more books like yours we need more discussions we need to sort of launch some of those those boils that have that have developed what is your thought and and how does the golden rule tie in well i think that it it ties into the golden thread of the book actually which is about alienation um the problem in south africa as i diagnose is really a problem of alienation which simply means that our relationships with each other are distorted um and in a serious sense actually quite perverse um that is why we are capable of inflicting the kinds of sadistic violence um on each other that we do and i'm not only talking about interpersonal violence i'm talking about economic violence um as well gender based violence too um the symbolic violence of of racism um is is another uh so the golden rule is really about getting our relationships with each other right um 
if you like, disalienating ourselves from each other. And what the golden rule essentially states is treat other people as you want to be treated and don't treat other people as you don't want to be treated. Um, interestingly, the, this golden rule is, is perhaps one of the very few universal ethical principles that human beings have ever come up with. It's found in agnostic, atheistic, theistic systems all over the world, um, across the millennia. And I think that it, it represents um, a high point, I think, in, in human thinking about how to relate to each other. And that's really what, what the book calls for. Again, it's much easier said than done. Um, given the ghosts of the past, it's not going to be a simple matter treating each other um, as fully human. There are going to be um, many ruptures. There are going to be many misunderstandings. Um, but ultimately, I, I believe that the, the golden rule holds promise for building a South African polity that recognizes the dignity um, of each one of us. Um, but again, I, I want to stress that if we are only going to follow, focus on the golden rule, then we're effectively going to try and kumbaya our way to a better South Africa, and that's not going to happen. The question of hope is not just a psychological question. It's a material one too. And that's why, as I said earlier, the land question is just as critical. We have to keep both streams moving in parallel, not just reimagining our relationships with each other, but also um, reimagining materially how life in South Africa gets done. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd love to be able to say thank you. You've answered all my questions, but uh, instead I'm going to say thank you. You've given us a whole lot more questions to ponder. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Uh, before I let you go, though, Wabi, um, the book's out. It's, it's, it's a great book. It's well worth a read just to change some of your perspectives and, and to get you thinking. Um, where are you now? What are you going to be doing going forward? Well, um, for the time being, David, I'm really just uh, doing interviews, uh, taking questions, giving talks. Um, there's been a remarkable, I think, outpouring of interest uh, in this book. And as you say, the book is, is something of a conversation starter in the sense that it raises so many, so many more questions. I, I, think, I think the book has been generative um, for many people across the political spectrum in South Africa. And, and for the moment, that's really what I'm doing. I'm, I'm just uh, engaging with people about, about the book, trying to tease out the implications of, of, of my arguments um, still further. Um, and I suppose just trying to help um, some South Africans uh, develop a different way of thinking about our problems. Um, the, the blurb on the jacket is that there are so many social commentaries, political commentaries, economic commentaries on life in South Africa, but desperately few, if any, psychological ones. And, and my hope is just that this book will, will, will be 
will be thought-provoking for, for people and, and offer them a different way of thinking about life in South Africa? Well, you know, I thought I was I was doing fairly okay until I, until I started to read the book. And as I said, uh, personally, I've got even more questions now. Um, Robbie, the, the book available in all good bookstores, is it available online as well? Yes, it is. Uh, on Amazon uh, via Kindle, it, it is available. And then, as you say, in all good bookstores. Wonderful stuff. Well, it is uh, definitely a thought-provoking book. Uh, Professor Robbie Long, thank you so much for taking the time out, having a chat to us um, and, and writing this book, which I think is needed. So uh, we do wish you all the best going forward. And uh, hopefully we get to chat to you again sometime in the future. And we've got better news and more hope. That would be great. Thanks very much, David. There we go. That was my special guest, Professor Wabi Long. Uh, the book is called Nation on the Couch, Inside South Africa's Mind. It is well worth a read. Very, very thought-provoking. Uh, and it wraps it up for what's involved. Uh, to each and every one of you, look after yourselves, take care, and thank you for listening.